Good morning and welcome to our church, to uh, GBC Grace Bible Church. I'm always amazed at our Lord's goodness uh, to, our, to His people. James tells us the, in his letter, the, the book of James, tells us that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In Psalm 145, verse 7, King David proclaims, Men shall pour forth the memory of your abundant goodness. This is speaking to Yahweh. And will shout joyfully of your righteousness. And Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He's great in loving kindness. And Yahweh is good to all. His compassions are over all His works. You see, God is so good he is so good that He alone defines what it means to be good. You ever thought about that? When Paul writes in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We, we understand this to mean that when we are called according to His purpose, everything that happens to us is not only according to His sovereign will, but He has ordained those things to happen for our good. And that's exactly what James meant by saying that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. You see, James was writing to a people who were struggling with great persecution. They were suffering for their faith in Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 1.3, Peter wrote the following to people who were being greatly tested. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. In these verses, Paul reminds, or Peter reminds his readers of their inheritance being kept in heaven for them. It is an inheritance that you will, will receive that is beyond all comp comprehension. And according to Peter, those people were being protected. You are being protected uh, by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you can greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, now for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials. You see, Peter wanted them to know that even though they were being tested by difficult trials, even in their case persecution, they could rejoice. They could still rejoice in the promise of their amazing inheritance in Christ Jesus. Their rejoicing in great difficulty would even be the proof that their faith is more precious, that their faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found in result to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The proof of their faith being more precious than that. Church, every day I hear how you are struggling with life's problems and life's difficulties. And I know for a fact that I only hear a fraction of what's out there. I want you to know I take these difficulties to heart and I take them to the Lord on your behalf. I want you to know that if you are His, you can trust Him to use those difficulties, to use those trials for your good and for His glory. That's Romans 8.28. Here's what I want you to know. This is not just Christian speak. 
This is not just Christian speak to make you feel better. We serve, you serve, if you are in Christ, you serve the God of the universe. He created all of it for His glory. In the words of David, the earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. When we have faith in the majestic power of the Lord we serve, we can trust in His sovereign power over the world, and we can even trust in His ability to work through the pains and difficulties of our lives. He knows every one of them. And He's using them for your good. As we look out over the landscape of our fallen world, we can't help but be grieved by all the things that we see, by even the atrocities that we see. Last weekend, I didn't bring it up much last weekend because I was still processing it, the nation of Israel suffered a horrific terror attack. Forgive me for not addressing this publicly last week. I just needed to process my thoughts as, as before I spoke. Because of the internet and, and cellular coverage, we're able to see the aftermath of those attacks on our phones. We were able to see them in the palm of our hand. And the brutality, even through our phone, the brutality is almost indescribable. In the words of our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he says, babies slaughtered, bodies desecrated, young people burned alive, women raped, the parents, of, parents executed in front of their children, children in front of their parents. How are we even to understand this? What Blinken said was true, but as you know, babies weren't just slaughtered, some of them were even beheaded. My answer is the only way to understand this is by seeking the Lord for His wisdom in His Word, and in prayer. That's the only answer there is. God's Word gives us the answers we need to understand the evil that operates around us. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to discern the extent of this evil in our response to it. The Word of God also gives us help when we need, that we need when we struggle with fear and despair, personally. So, putting all this together, and I think this, uh, this is going to connect. This is going to connect to our sermon this morning. I want you to know that we, as Grace Bible Church, stand on the side of righteousness. I firmly believe. My eschatology informs me. I firmly believe that God has a future purpose for Israel. I, I firmly believe that. But I and I also firmly believe Romans eight twenty eight for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And in Genesis 12, 1-3, Yahweh called Abraham and said, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, that is in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, God blessed His people through Abraham. That was His sovereign choice. And I believe that God's blessing, if you read through Genesis, from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 50, you see that God's blessing was handed down through Isaac, through Jacob, and through Judah. Ultimately, this blessing is found in Judah's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the promised seed from Genesis 3.15. He is the, the Israel's promised Messiah. The one that was prophesied to come. And I believe that one day, He will return and He will reestablish Israel in the promised land. 
I believe that firmly. And I've preached it many times, and you've heard me preach it. Having said that, we have to deal with the here and now. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky for the church. So here's the question. How are we to understand the modern nation of Israel? And let me give you my, let me give you my best answer. I believe the Jewish people are still under God's judgment. They have been under His judgment for their disobedience. Yet, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11-2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. May it never be. I firmly believe the Jewish people are under God's judgment, but I also believe that modern Israel is by and large, and I also believe that modern Israel is by and large an apostate nation. I also believe there continues to be a remnant whom God will restore. That's the truth. That within Israel, the modern state of Israel, there, is, there continues to be a remnant who love God. Paul says that very thing in Romans 11, 4 and 5. He says, he says this, but what does the divine response say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In this way then, at the present time, this is present to Paul, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice has also come to be. Today, there is a remnant of Jews who have believed in Jesus as their Messiah. And I believe that in, the, in, a, in one day in the near future, God will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That, I didn't say that. I didn't make it up. That's Zechariah 12.10. In the meantime, going back to Genesis 12, we dare not curse them. We need to weep with those who weep. We continue to pray for them. We continue to preach the Gospel to them. And we continue, yes, to weep for them. When it comes to what's happening in Israel right now, it doesn't matter what you believe about end times prophecy. I mean, it does matter, but it doesn't matter when it comes to what's happening in the land today. We must take a stand against the evil displayed by those brutal attacks that we saw last weekend. The Jewish people have every right to defend themselves against brutal enemies. I sincerely believe that they, that they want to be left in peace. And I also believe that if their enemies laid down their weapons, there wouldn't be war. I think it was Dennis Prager that said that. Also, I sincerely believe that they will never find peace, though. They will never find peace even in the land until they repent and turn to their true Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And that's the crux of the problem, and that's what it that's what fits even today, what we're going to see in Scripture today. Today, Israel continues to reject Jesus as their Messiah. That uh, that is the, the issue, and it's not some new problem for them. Uh, their, their rejection began when the Messiah arrived, <coughs> when the Lord Jesus, excuse me, <coughs> when the Lord Jesus arrived. Ultimately, they rejected their Messiah 
because they trusted in their own righteousness, which was their interpretation of the law. They put their confidence in their own flesh to follow the works of the law to make themselves right with God. And in doing so, they rejected the good news of God's grace through His Son, the Lord Jesus. And they sent Him to the cross by the hands of godless men. They denied the holy and righteous one and they asked for a murderer to be granted to them. They put to death the author of life whom God raised from from the dead. And I didn't say that. Peter said it. Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Even today as we watch the bombs rain down, they are still rejecting their king. They are still enduring God's judgment at the hands of godless men. Well, this morning we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His glory. And we're currently studying the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is your King's manifesto. Today we find ourselves at the crux of Jesus' main argument in His sermon. I plan to take at least a couple of weeks, maybe, maybe more, to unpack the next four verses of Matthew 5. 5.17-20. I pray that this study will shed light on how we are to view the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And I pray that it will give you confidence in how to view and understand the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And I pray that it will give you better insight into the current conflict in Israel. Let me read the text. Starting in Matthew 5, verse 17. Matthew 5.17 Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Back in 2018, let me pray first and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. Pray that for we've already prayed for Israel and the situation there. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we view that situation. And I also pray this morning that you would bless the preaching of your word and that we would be able to bring great clarity in these matters. In Christ's name, amen. Back in 2018, Andy Stanley called for the church to be unhitched from the Old Testament. He taught that the church should not use the, the Old Testament as her, in his words, go-to source regarding any behavior. Of course, Stanley was referring to the oft-quoted passages regarding homosexuality. In Leviticus 18.22, Yahweh commanded the Israelites, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. In very clear-cut language, God prohibited the act of homosexuality among the Israelites. But Andy Stanley wants us to ignore this prohibition. He calls texts like Leviticus 18 clobber verses. Back in 
Leviticus 18, Yahweh goes on to say, Also you shall not lie with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Now that is uh, not necessarily language that we would normally use in the church, but it is the Word of God. And the question is, is it fair for me to ask if Stanley believes this is a clobber verse? Is that fair for me to ask? It's probably not fair to ask that. I'm pretty sure I know the answer that he would say that we shouldn't do those things, right? It's interesting to me that bestiality is not directly mentioned in the New Testament. If we take the, the stance that only the New Testament counts, that, and that we should avoid these clobber verses, then we would ignore that command as well, right? Well, of course not. Of course not. We wouldn't do that. Well, I've heard people in the church argue for monogamous homosexual relationships. At least we're not arguing for monogamous relationships with animals yet. Seriously, though, back in Leviticus 18... Yahweh gives us the reason for these prohibitions. He tells them to avoid these behaviors so they won't defile themselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. He wanted Israel to be set apart. He wanted Israel to be different. He wanted Israel to be a picture of His righteousness. And therefore, He said, don't do these things because they will defile you. But here's the problem with unhitching from the Old Testament. If you do so, you are unhitching from you are unhitching from the foundation of the New Testament. Many people in the church believe in what is called the New Testament priority. Most would not go so far as to say that we ought to ignore the Old Testament's moral demands or commands, but they say the old the New Testament explains the Old Testament. In other words, we cannot understand or explain the Old Testament without having the New Testament. But that brings up some questions to ponder. How do we interpret the Old Testament? How are we to view the Old Testament, especially considering the, the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah? During His earthly ministry, did He reinterpret the Old Testament for us? Does the New Testament take priority over the Old Testament, or is there another way to view it? Specifically, what is our relationship with the law which is given in the Old Testament? Have you ever asked that question? How do we view the law considering God's grace? How do you view your own righteousness considering God's holy standard for righteousness? Well, I hope to answer these questions and more as we begin this study in Matthew 5, 17-20. In these verses, Matthew 5, 17-20, King Jesus reveals two shocking truths about kingdom righteousness. You must recognize that kingdom righteousness first completely concurs with Old Testament righteousness. There is no difference. Second, that kingdom righteousness comprehensively challenges pharisaical or legalistic righteousness. Now I plan to work, over, work through these verses over the next two to three Sermons, I want you to know that these verses, Matthew 5, 17-20, are absolutely super critical. Our understanding of Jesus' earthly ministry and our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount hinges on our understanding of these four verses. I promise you, I promise you that you need to understand them. 
Today, let's start by looking at this first shocking truth. Kingdom righteousness completely concurs with uh, Old Testament righteousness. Now again, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Specifically, we're picking up at a transition point in Matthew's, sorry, in, uh, in Jesus' sermon. Uh, this transition point after his introduction, now he's transitioning to the body of the sermon. But I would say this is the propositional statement of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, in Matthew chapter 4, let me remind you that after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, Matthew tells us that he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. After his coronation as the true king, he was tested. And after pa- passing this series of tests, John the Baptist's ministry began to give away, give way to Jesus' ministry. You may recall, as we preach through it, that this transition between John the Baptist and Jesus took about one year. And during that time, Jesus relocated to the region of Galilee and began preaching the same message as John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he began also to call his disciples, according to Matthew 4.23, as in the lead up to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the reason I bring this up is because what we have to recognize is that as he began to preach this sermon, his fame was beginning to rise. His fame was beginning to spread throughout uh, the region and beyond. People were beginning to follow him. No doubt, he was causing a great stir and he was drawing the attention of the established religious leadership of the Jewish people. The time had then come for him to clearly state his teaching so that all would know why he came. And that's why we've called this, I've named this the King's Manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 1-2, Matthew sets the scene for us. Jesus went up on the mountain. Now, that may, you may recall that, that Moses went up on the mountain. So, what we see here is that Jesus is the new prophet that Moses had prophesied. Now, he opened his mouth in, in Matthew 5, 2, and he began to teach them. Now, in Matthew 5, 3 through 12, Jesus gave his famous introduction to, to his sermon, the so-called Beatitudes. Now, we, we spent several weeks over the past, actually several, probably two to three months, looking at that series of blessings. The, the Beatitudes basically amount to the process of salvation and sanctification for the true believer and follower in Christ. Now, those Beatitudes culminate in His proclamation that His disciples, those who have turned to Him, those who are salt and light, those, the, 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 those who have turned to Him are to be salt and light in this dark and decaying world. He says that in Matthew 5.13 and Matthew 5.14. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Now, as salt and light, we are to live in this world slowing down the inevitable decay by living according to our King's commands. And we're also to be lights, and we're to let our lights shine before men. This is Matthew 5.16. We are to let our lights shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Now, what we have to recognize is some will glorify Him by turning to Him and saving faith. Some will will see these things and they'll, go, they'll turn to Him because of His electing grace. And some, though, will glorify Him by rejecting Him. They will face His righteous judgment. And as we shine our lights in this world, what we have to see is, is that we will face great 
hostility from those people in this world as it is passing away. We will even face opposition similar to what our Lord faced during His earthly ministry. Now, as He sat on the mountain preaching this message, he, this message, it would bring great clarity on his ministry. He was probably already, in, already sensing a great antagonism. In the, the Father's sovereign plan, the, the resistance to his ministry would begin as small, but it would increase until they were ready even to murder him. But one must ask, one must ask, why did the religious leaders begin to hate Jesus in the first place? And what led them to take such drastic action by sending Him to be crucified on a Roman cross? I believe Jesus addresses those crucial questions in this passage. Ultimately, the conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment came down to two main questions. Two main questions. What is the standard for righteousness? In other words, what are good works? And who defines the standard for righteousness? In other words, who defines good works? Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones states, the theme of the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount is the kind of life of righteousness which the Christian is to live. End quote. So as we progress through this sermon, as we progress through the rest of this sermon, the balance of it, we're going to find two very different approaches and answers to these questions. Put simply, Kingdom righteousness is completely antithetical to the legalistic man-made righteousness held by the Jewish leaders. And by the way, held by many today. Now, what we have to recognize, that is where the conflict came from. That is the issue. that This legalistic man-made righteousness versus kingdom righteousness. Now with that, let's look at the first of those two shocking truths. You must recognize that kingdom righteousness completely concurs with Old Testament righteousness. Look back at your text in Matthew 5.17. He says, do not think. Do not think. Earlier I said that this is Jesus' main argument in His sermon. Today, to truly, I would argue that a right understanding of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, along with a right understanding of law versus grace, Uh, hinges on the understanding of of Jesus' meaning in these verses. And he begins this main argument with the phrase, do not think. This form could be translated, do not allow yourselves to suppose. Or maybe, don't be confused. In our modern English, we we may say, don't get it in your head. My favorite idiom for this would be, don't get it twisted. As I, as I said a few minutes ago, Jesus already knew the question of how His teaching related to the Old Testament was boiling to the surface. More specifically, what they were asking is how Jesus' interpretation of the law compared to the interpretation of the law by the religious establishment. The critical question, this critical question that, that, that is being asked became, again, the crux of the argument. Put simply, put simply, they would accuse Jesus of teaching something different than the Old Testament law. He tells them without hesitation, don't get it twisted. Don't even dare to think that because it is not true. Now, his statement here, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, 
his statement may seem out of left field. It may seem like what, where, where, he's just talking about salt and light and, and all those things, and all of a sudden he says this. But it's not if, you are follow, if you're closely following his argument. He just talked about being salt and light in the world. So the question is, how does that relate to Matthew 5.17? Well, as, as we saw just a few minutes ago in Matthew 5.16, Jesus told them to let their light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. That's the key. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the question we just brought up. What are good works and who defines them? You see, Jesus is telling them to show their good works, but how do you define good works? Are they defined by the Pharisees and the scribes? How are they defined? See, in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, He says that all His teaching is in an absolute harmony with the entire teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures. He will not teach anything that will contradict them in any way. And I can tell you that Jesus in His ministry, uh, that Jesus and the, the apostles never contradicted the Old Testament in any way. Matthew 5.17, Jesus is telling His listeners that He defines good works in the same way they were defined by God in the Old Testament. See, He knew, he knew that they would uh, accuse Him of abolishing the law. Because His teachings, he, he understood that His teachings would sound radically different than the Pharisaical teaching about the law. He knew that they would label Him a rebel for disobeying God's law. He even knew that they would even try to expel Him from Jewish life for rejecting the authority of the law. And furthermore, He knew that they wouldn't accept His disciples if they followed His teaching. Ultimately, they would send Him to the cross for these reasons. And He was also acutely aware that they would do the same to His followers, which is why He's teaching them at this point. Therefore, He strongly addressed the misconception even though He knew it would make no difference to the Jewish leaders. They, they rejected Him and they would. But he, he knew that. His purpose was to prevent a misunderstanding of the drastic contrast between His interpretation of the law and their interpretation of the law. You see, His ideal of the law, the law of God, was immeasurably higher than theirs. Theirs was earthly and worldly. His was heavenly. But they could not comprehend His, his teaching. They didn't understand it. The Apostle John explains it this way, the darkness did not comprehend the lights. That's John 1.5. They couldn't comprehend the lights. These, these verses amount to the explanation of all the antagonism towards Him which was displayed by the, the religious establishment. You see, the, the, the Pharisees, uh, the scribes, the, the doctors of the law, and, and all these other people, uh, that they, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. This was the reason, this was the reason for all their troubling, uh, troubles and, and the suffering that He had to endure was because they didn't get it. His ways were much higher than their ways and they couldn't comprehend it. Ultimately, they refused to comprehend it. And Jesus knew at this very moment, preaching this sermon, when He came to Matthew 5.17, He knew that this was the crux of the issue. He understood that. So, in this part of the sermon, He addresses the purpose of His coming. And He does so 
by first speaking in the negative. Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Look back at your text in 5.17. He did not come to abolish it. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. You see, Jesus knew the purpose and ramifications of His coming. He completely knew. He knew and understood why He came. He knew that He had been sent by the Father and that He was the Son of God. He knew that God had sent Him to redeem the world. In John 3, 16-18, which occurred, this is John 3, when Jesus went to Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus, which, by the way, this occurred before this sermon, Jesus had told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, Jesus knew that His coming, He knew that He was the Son of God, He knew that His coming would bring judgment to the world, and He told Nicodemus in John 3.19, he said, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are or were evil. You see, Jesus knew all these things when He went up on the mountain to preach this sermon. He fully understood that He was Israel's Messiah. He fully understood that He was the King. And all of these implications were in His mind when He said, do not think I came to abolish... His his coming had significance well beyond their imagination and well beyond our imagination. You see, the disciples, when they heard it, they could not have understood the significance of His coming, but He did. And the Jewish religious establishment didn't understand, nor did they want to. You see, He represented a challenge to them. He represented a challenge to their way of life, and He represented a challenge to their interpretation of the law. And they were blinded to everything else. And again, that is the crux of the issue. They loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Jesus had come to judge them, and all men who loved the darkness, and that's that's that's, that's that's the main issue. Look back at your text in Matthew 5.17. Jesus says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, the question is, what is the law and the prophets? As we work through this text, it's it's critical that we have a good understanding of what Jesus means by this. First, I, I want you to notice that your English translation includes the definite article, the, is attached to the word law. This means that Jesus spoke of something specific. He was clearly referring to the law of God. If you go back to Exodus 20, verse 1, we're going to be there today, so if you want to quickly turn back there and leave a finger there, you can. But you can turn there now if you'd like, or it's in the handout as well. As you turn there, I should tell you that this is the account of God giving the Ten Commandments, what we call the Ten Commandments, to Moses. Now, notice in Exodus 21, if you're there, you will find that God personally spoke all these words. Look at verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying. Now if you look at 
The following verses, Exodus 22 through 6, you will notice the personal giving of these, word, uh, of these words in the phrase, I am Yahweh your God. So it's a, person, there's, it's a personal thing. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh your God. It says that in verse 2. He says that again in verse 5. For I, Yahweh, am your God. It even goes on to say, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. I mean, so he's even, he even talks about having a jealousy over, over them. So the use of personal pronouns and the covenant name of God emphasize here in Exodus 20 in the giving of the Ten Commandments that, that the, the personal pronouns and covenant name of God emphasize the personal nature of these commandments. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, the law given there is the only law because the Lord is the only God. The Lord does not change. And His law does not change. It does not change to meet the whims of society or even theologians or even pastors. It was not given to be adapted and modified, but to be obeyed. It was not given to suit man's will, but to reveal God's will. End quote. Put simply, the law that Jesus speaks of is the law. There's no other law. There is none other because there's no other God. He is Yahweh. He is your God. God God's law was personally given by Him, and as such, His law is absolute. His law is unchangeable, unchanging. His law is eternal, and it cannot be modified by anyone, including Andy Stanley. Now you may be asking, what is the law of God? Well, God has boiled down His law Boiled his law down to the Ten Commandments. That, that's what we, we're in Exodus 20. That's what we see there. In Exodus 20, verse two, verses 2 through 17, those commandments represent the law of God. Now, we can rightly say that Moses' writing, writings, the Torah or the Pentateuch, uh, this is the five, first five books of the Old Testament, we can rightly say that that is considered the law of God. So when Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets, we can be assured that he was referring to what we call now, now called the Old Testament. Later in his earthly ministry, just to affirm this or just to show this, later in, in his, his earthly ministry, he affirmed the entirety of the Old Testament. At, in Matthew 23 23-35, at the end of a long list of woes, by, by the way, against these long list of woes against the scribes and Pharisees, he warned them. He said this, upon you, now it's clear, it's interesting here, he's, this is woes against the Pharisees and scribes. He's warning them, he says, upon you the guilt of all righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. What, what we find here is, of course, we find righteous Abel in Genesis, right? The first book of the Old Testament. His reference to Zechariah can be found at the end of 2 Chronicles. Now, here's, what, here's what's key. The Scripture in Jesus' day began with Genesis, just like ours, and ended with 2 Chronicle, Chronicles. But here's, here's what we need to understand. The contents was identical to what we have in the Old Testament. So Jesus affirmed the entirety of the, the Old Testament. 
even though the ordering of the books was different. So clearly when Jesus came to tell, or told them that He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, He was referring to the entirety of the Old Testament as we have today. The 39 books, it was 22 uh, in Jesus' day. Same content, 22 books, ordered differently. We have 39, uh, different order, but it's exactly the same content. So the law that God gave, so, so the law that God gave which the prophets affirmed. That's what he's saying. The law that God gave, which the prophets affirmed all the way from, from Genesis uh, to, to the end of the Old Testament. So, when Jesus says He didn't come to abolish the law and prophet, He means that He didn't come to do away with them or to change them in any way. And, and that is a, an incredibly important distinction that we need to recognize in the New Testament church. Our Lord did not change or re, even reinterpret the law and the prophets in any way. They, they stand on their own. In the words of John MacArthur, everything, that, everything Jesus taught directly in His own ministry, as well as everything He taught through the apostles, is based on the Old Testament. It is therefore impossible to understand or accept the New Testament apart from the Old. End quotes. So, with our remaining few minutes, I want to explain how God's law applies to us even today. We spend the rest of our time considering the origin of the law along with the, with the implications. So, the question is, what is the origin of the law? Earlier, earlier I pointed out that God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Now, you may recall from biblical history that many things happened prior to that point. Prior to Israel's wanderings after the exodus from Egypt. So, so they have all this history that we did that's prior to the law. You, you do understand that. So in Genesis, we find the stories of five, the five men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We're going to throw Joseph in there. And Judah. The, the, line, uh, the line of the Messiah goes through Judah. That's the reason why I, I bring him in. Prior to the patriarchs, we have the stories of five major events of Genesis. The creation of the world. The fall of man the judgment by the flood, and the formation of the nations. In other words, the world existed from the creation to the exodus of Israel before the giving of the law. That's a lot of history. That's a lot of history before the giving of the law. So the question is, did the law exist prior to God giving it to the Israelites at Mount Sinai? I wish we could have discussion here. We can't, because it's, that's not the way it's set up. But the point is, the question is, did the law exist prior to giving it to the Israelites at Mount Sinai? And I would argue that it did exist for the same reason it existed in Jesus' day and in our day. God's law, God's law exists because it was and is founded upon God's character. I want you to get that. I want to say it carefully. God's law exists because it was and it is founded on God's character. Now I would also argue that God's law can be summed up just like Jesus summed it up in Matthew 22, 37-40. He says, And He said to him, this is speaking to this man, He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, in other words... 
the law can be boiled down to two great commandments. The first great commandment is to love is love for God, which you show by obeying the first four commandments. The second great commandment is your love for a fellow man, which you show by obeying the final six. Of course, our obedience to God is shown by our reverence for all His commandments. That's the reason Jesus says on in, in back in Matthew, back in Matthew twenty two forty, He says, "On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets." Now, there's that that word again: the whole law, the law and the prophets, or that phrase. So, when I say that these commandments are founded on God's character, here's what I mean. I would argue, I would argue that God's creation prior to the fall reflected His glory and His holy character. You will find, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you'll find that every commandment is founded in the creation accounts. Let's test that. The first commandment is, you shall have no gods before me. No other gods before me. We see the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 clearly shows that God is above all gods. He is the one worthy of worship. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You see, God created the heavens and the earth. He's far above them and therefore you must worship the Creator, not the created. Not what He created. Again, clearly in, in Genesis chapter 1. In 20 verse, Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Well, we recognize from the, the creation account that God has a name that is above all names. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is the, the majestic God who created all things. He is the relational God who created man for His glory. That's Genesis 2. I could keep going. We don't murder man because man is made in God's image. Genesis 1, 26-28. We don't bear false witness because God is holy and clearly reveals Himself in His creation. He doesn't bear false witness. He's the God of truth. We are not to steal or covet because God has made a world that's plentiful, that's bountiful. There's no reason to covet. There's no reason to steal. The world is bountiful enough for all to share in it. Now, you may have noticed that I didn't mention the Sabbath. You might say, oh, I got you on that one. We don't observe the Sabbath here in this church. Well, it says in, in, in Exodus 28, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, to keep it holy. The obvious question is how does this relate to creation and, still, and, it, and should it still apply today? Well, actually the answer is found in the next two verses in Exodus 20, 9 and 10. It says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Where did the six days come from? Creation, right? And in the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall, do no, shall not do any work. Your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. So where did the seventh day come from? Well, that's Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Again, back to creation. Clearly this points back to creation. Well, in Genesis 1.31, at the end of the sixth day, it says this, And God saw all that He made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now I want you to notice here, 
that Moses ends the sixth day with the same formula that he's used from the, la- from the first through the sixth day. There was evening and there was morning. One day, that's the first, that's, that's the day one. And after that, it's, there was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning third day. Now, look at Genesis 2.1 if you're there. And it's in the handout if, you, if you're not. It says this, Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their host, and on the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it He rested from all the work which God had created in making it. Now, God had established the pattern of working six days and resting on the seventh. It was this pattern it was this pattern that was set at creation that God expected Israel to follow. That's Exodus 20. But this is critical for you to understand. When God created the world, He created in six days, then He rested. And at that time of His resting, in Genesis 1.31, it says everything was very good. Here's what you need to recognize. Everything was very good because at that time the world was at Sabbath rest. The world was complete. He, I would argue that God intends for His creation to continue at Sabbath rest. What changed that? You, you biblical scholars tell me, what changed that? Man's sin. Man's sin in the garden. The fall of man. You see, the world, it, it, doesn't take a, it doesn't take a brilliant person to go look at this world and see that it's not at rest, right? It's no longer a Sabbath rest. If we understand then that the, the Ten Commandments to represent the world operating as it should, then you should recognize that the Sabbath day gave Israelites one day to look back at creation to remind them of how the world should be. Boy, that's profound. That's profound. And it also gives them the chance to look forward to a day when God's creation would be restored. Even more profound. You see, the world, when God restores His creation, the world will be at rest. And God will restore His creation through the prophesied Messiah, Jesus the King and Israel's Messiah. He will bring that Sabbath rest. You see, God, uh, Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Look back at your text. Jesus came in Matthew 5.17. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. You see, He didn't come to do away with the law, but to carry out the law. He, literally carried, he will literally carry out everything that has been said by Moses and the prophets. He will teach the true meaning and the implications of the Old Testament, and He will fully obey the law. He, in doing so, Jesus contended uh, for the permanence of God's holy law in, in His words in, in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's why he said that. Nothing will change. The interpretation will never change. And oh, by the way, He is our Sabbath rest. It's in Him. When He says, come to Me all you weary and heavy laden, and you will find 
rest? That's what he's talking about. He's referring to true Sabbath rest that we find in him as Christians. And we'll experience it. We'll experience it in the future when he returns. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise. As we close, I want to remind you of Jesus' words in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. If you're here today and don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I point you to this verse. Jesus is the way He is the truth. And He is the life. You cannot be saved but through His finished work on the cross. You cannot be saved if you don't have faith in His finished work and faith in Him. He came and He perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law. You and I I have miserably failed to obey. Yet He obeyed perfectly. He went to the cross not for sins He committed. He took my sins. He took your sins. He took the sins of the world upon Himself. He suffered the wrath of the Father in our place. I often quote this because it's such an important verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And I love Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you if you believe in Him. If you are here today, your hope cannot be in this world. Your only hope is in Christ. Don't let another moment pass. If you don't know Him, turn to Him today. Believe in Him today. Don't let another second go by. You could drop dead even now. And wake up facing the wrath of the Father. Turn to Him. Turn to Him. He perfectly fulfilled the law's demands. He's perfectly righteous and He wants to give that righteousness to you. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. Early afternoon, that is. Lord, as we see in Scripture, as we see in this Scripture. The Lord Jesus, Jesus, Lord Jesus, You didn't come to abolish the law. You came to fulfill it. Lord, may we look to You. May we understand that You perfectly obeyed while we have miserably failed. That we need Your righteousness. Not by doing the works of the law, but by trusting in grace. By trusting that You perfectly fulfilled all the law's demands. And that if I'm in You, that I've been given Your very righteousness. Father, we so thank You for all that You've done. Lord Jesus, we thank You for what You've accomplished. fulfilling the law's demands by going to the cross, by taking upon Yourself the sin, my sin. So that I would have hope. By faith.
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.